Hello and welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real-life zoo employees. As always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations and all thoughts and opinions are, are our own. Please keep in mind that we try to keep our podcast PG-13, so if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. I'm Katie. I'm Emily B. I'm Kenzie. I'm Emily A. And I'm Abby. We have everyone here this week. I really could not tell you when the last episode was that we were all here. We are today. So well, and that, special uh, shout out to us before we even get to the fan shout out, because I think our next episode is going to be our one year mark. <gasps> are you Stop. serious? Oh, yeah. we've been doing this for a year. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Wow. I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed with us a lot. Oh, oh my God. That Thank makes you. me so happy. Wow. Oh. What an accomplishment. Wow. Emotional. Wow. We love us. Can you tell? Get it? What? I said we're queens. Oh. What do you guys want us to talk about for our one year anniversary? Let us know and we'll put the poll up. Well, we started it in a crisis and we're still in a crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Should we talk about that crisis? We're just going to confess all of our feelings. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings. You sure you got the time for that? They're all the same. Well, speaking of our fans that have been with us for a year, um, who's got fan shout out? I do. So, everybody, thank you so much for answering our Earth Day question. Happy belated Earth Day. Um, so, thank you everyone who answered our Earth Day question on Instagram. We loved hearing from you. Um, our favorite response was Katie's brother who said that he wants to make out with a tree. So oh my- uh, let's do a little update for y'all. I found this really cool article, um, about corals and, um, something that we is being done to help them. We are, I'm not personally doing this. I wish I was. It'd be cool. Um, the article was called common human antibiotics can heal coral diseases with a 95% success rate using amoxicillin. What? Um, yeah. So there's been a recent outbreak of an infectious disease called stony coral, uh, tissue loss, which has affected 20 different stony coral species. I would never Um, have guessed from the very obvious name. Yep. Uh, it is spread throughout Florida's coral reef and into parts of the Caribbean, um, but the Harbor Branch Ocean Oceanographic Institute of Florida Atlantic University, that is a mouthful. That's a name. <laughs> found that an amoxicillin treatment had a 95% success rate at healing individual disease lesions in the coral. That's which is, awesome. Yeah, pretty rad. So That's, that's so cool. That's easy, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess. Have a conservation update. I do. Uh, this is one that I found on Instagram, um, and it's really cool. Lua Island is a uh, really big bird spot off the coast of Kauai in Hawaii, and this year it is officially free of invasive rats. Woo! Nice. Woo. And for those who don't know, that's a huge deal because rats are stupid hard to get rid of. They are. That's that's kind of crazy. They were able to do that. They were Where able to get rid of all of them from uh, Europe, you know, mostly humans. Um, so this is a paradise that helps a lot of animals like albatross and um, blue-footed boobies and other or other kinds uh, of boobies. A great bird. But yeah, so it's like it's a huge conservation wind, especially for any animals on that island. Mammals uh, do not belong in certain places and that's one of them because no mammals were there and then people were like well let's go invade polynesia and bring rats and then that's what happened so moving right along emily Uh, has zoo news this week i've got zoo news this week you guys are getting ready to listen to me talk for quite some time now because i've got zoo news beluga news and the first section of our well i guess it's like heck yeah she does first section are you i said the second i corrected myself all right, so Zoo News this week is a really cool one out of our home state of Florida. The Florida Coral Rescue Center um, has been created. So this is the largest facility of its kind in the United States, and it's providing a safe, stable environment for coral con- colonies to receive care and reproduce with a bunch of coral experts. So here in Florida, 
a coral zoo. Yeah, pretty much. Um, here in Florida, we have the Florida reef system that runs most of the east coast of Florida. Um, but those corals have seen a lot of issues from warming water temperatures, diseases, et cetera, habitat loss. Um, so this is a coordinated effort by the AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, there are many, many groups that are collaborating on this. Um, the facility, I believe, is actually run by SeaWorld, um, but it is in collaboration with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, NOAA, Disney Conservation Fund, um, and a whole bunch of other AZA accredited facilities. And they're also getting funded by a bunch of outdoor funds, including Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's. So that's <gasps> pretty cool. Okay, I've always told people Cabela's is actually the best. It's such we a cool Cabela's. store and they do cool stuff and they're very conservation oriented. So I was reading an article about this coral rescue center and they are currently holding 753 individual corals, hoping to breed them um, and basically rehabilitate them. They have 18 different species. They're all reef building corals that are native to Florida reef systems. And the goal is to return these rescued corals back to the ocean so they can help restore these ecosystems, which are essential to tons and tons and tons of marine life who rely on them. So we love that. It's local to us. A lot of people that we know personally are working on this project. Um, we're really proud of our organization's involvement um, with this project. So really great to see. We love helping corals. It's very helpful. Yeah. Woo. They're actually really they're, great news. I like They're that. important. They are. So this project was actually announced to AZA um, facilities a couple of years ago, and there was a list that came out of all the organizations that are helping. Um, and the goal is to have most AZA facilities who have the capacity to help raise these corals are going to help. So this is going to be happening all over the United States, um, which is really awesome. But it's all to help the Florida reefs. Love that. Um, next up is Beluga News, the best news, my favorite news. Um, personal note, I went and visited SeaWorld on, uh, Friday this week and I did not see the belugas and I was supposed to take a beluga tour and I'm very sad about it. But, but tell them okay. why. Well, yes, so tell them why. It's my favorite. <laughs> so SeaWorld currently has, uh, two male belugas and it is that time of the year. They're looking for ladies. They're looking to make some babies and they ain't got no ladies. So, uh, <laughs> the guests are not the most interesting thing in the world to them. Surprise, surprise. So. No, but believe it's worth me. No, not really. They just, just would rather hang out backstage and eat food, which honestly, same. Um, speaking of belugas, the beluga <laughs> news this week is actually something that I'm really excited about. Um, so I was, you know, minding my own business the other day, scrolling through Instagram, looking at beluga things as one does. And I stumbled upon this company called Beluga Bath Co. They actually just launched on Earth Day this year. So they're brand new, small business. Um, it's this couple who lives out in Connecticut and they wanted a way to support whale conservation. So they were like, let's just make a product and give some of the money to the Ocean Alliance, which does a lot of work with different whales, but including beluga whales. Um, so again, their company's called Beluga Bath Co. And I reached out to them because I was like, yo, you guys are right up my alley and right up this <laughs> podcast alley. So can I talk about you because you're amazing? And they were like, well, yes, obviously you can talk about us because we are amazing. Also, let's send you free stuff. So shout out to Beluga Bath Co. who sent me two bath bombs and bath salts and they all smell incredible. Also, the names of their products are amazing. For yes. example, one of the bath bombs is called Happy as a Clam and they sent that one to me and I literally almost cried when I opened it. They must have gone through your Instagram feed and right. like, this is the this one that she has really to loves include. giant clams. <laughs> they were like, let's send her the clam bath bomb. Um, they also sent one called Sea Monster, which <gasps> is like black. So that's I'm the one I want to try. That's the um, one that I saw on the yes. website and I was like, this is my vibe. Cause looking at the smells, I was like, oh yes. Yes. So get yourself some Beluga Bath Co products. Right now they have bath bombs and bath salts. They're very reasonably priced. All the packaging is eco-friendly and recyclable. Um, everything is cruelty free, biodegradable. And there's a lot of organic and vegan ingredients that they use. So they're doing their best to help the earth. And again, 10% of their proceeds go to the Ocean Alliance. They also have a little button when you check out on their website if you want to add an additional donation to the that will go straight to the Ocean Alliance. So that's beautiful. We love that. Um, yeah, so that's Beluga News. Go get yourself some bath bombs. They said they're hoping in the future to also do shower bombs. And uh, I think soap was the other one. So be on the lookout. Everybody go follow them on Instagram. I'm in the They're middle amazing. of building my box. 
It's amazing. Oh. Also, all their box names are so cute. It's like the, the minky box, the humpback whale box. Like, ugh. so much thought went into all of this, and I just want to give them a hug. All right. And that leads us to the topic of the day. Wow. Surprise, surprise. More beluga whales. Abby's <laughs> <take away. laughs> I want to be clear. It's not just beluga whales. So... Uh, we're doing another episode in our biome series, as you probably know from the title of this episode. And we're talking about polar habitats, aka the tundra. So uh, let's get started. Minnesota was founded in 1858. Oh my God. I'm just kidding. I promise. (laughs) To be fair, if you've lived in the upper Midwest, you would agree that it is also the tundra. There is actually, I was, when I was doing research for like what biomes we were going to cover, there was some argument that coniferous forest belongs in the tundra biome, which would mean most of Canada and part of Minnesota was part of the tundra. Um, Interesting. So um, the tundra is also known as the Arctic. Um, They're slightly different. Tundra is more like a little bit scrubby and the Arctic is truly a cold desert. So if you guys remember our desert episode, we talked about how deserts receive less than 10 inches of rain every single year. Um, The Arctic is like that. They do not get more than 10 inches of precipitation every single year. So they are considered technically a desert, which is crazy because they're cold and they have snow, but a lot of it is packed snow. So the tundra and the Arctic are biomes of extremes is the way they've been described, especially uh, actually directly by the National Wildlife Federation. Um, they're extremes in a couple of ways. They are on the extreme poles of the earth, the northern and the southernmost points of the earth. So the Arctic and Antarctica, they have the longest nights and days and the shortest nights and days of anywhere else on earth because of the way that the earth tilts, um, which is pretty crazy. They also have extreme temperatures, so they can get really, really cold, obviously, but then they can warm up, uh, obviously not, well... Nowadays, they can get up to a pretty reasonable summer temperature, but when we before we started destroying it, they didn't get too cold or too warm. Um, it also is covered in sea ice, which I'm sure Emily is going to talk a lot about because that is a big, important part of ocean. it. We do love the ocean. So let's talk a little bit about um, Arctic versus Antarctic. They are slightly different. The Arctic region yeah, is what one covers is where Santa Claus lives. Uh, yeah, Santa there. Claus okay. and his penguins. Great. Uh, Next segment. Uh, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to cause a little chaos. Okay. <laughs> so, so Abby, what 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 is the difference? <laughs> all right. So first of all, Arctic is the North Pole. So the North Pole is different than the South Pole in a couple of ways. The first is that it is made almost entirely out of sea ice. Um, The pack ice is really thick. There's a lot of glaciers there. Um, There are some, a little bit of tundra, which uh, treeless plains. And there's something called permafrost, which is basically frost that never melts. And that's what kind of keeps everything sealed in um, until we destroy it with our carbon use. But it's fine. Everything's fine. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I'm sure we will. (laughs) So on the opposite end, we have Antarctica. Antarctica is an actual continent, uh, which means that there is like a base made out of rock. So that means that it, um, all the ice is packed on top of it. So it's not just sea ice. Uh, It certainly is surrounded by some sea ice and definitely the continent quote unquote grows during the colder months of the year. Like right now for them, it's fall. So it's starting to get a little bit colder and they're going to start, um, having more ice down there, but it doesn't mean that uh, there's not rock underneath there. So there is still rock there, which is kind of cool. On the other other end, um, we have kind of the tundra. Tundra is a little bit different than the Arctic, like I said. It's more of like, uh, like it's kind of like a diet Arctic. Interesting. You know what I mean? It's like scrubland, right? Yeah, it's kind of like a like a cold scrubland. It has that permafrost, like I said. Um, there's a short growing season, but it's not really uh, ideal for life. But somehow, you know, life finds a way. Life finds a way. <laughs> <laughs> I really uh, watched that movie the other night. <laughs> so good. Uh, they also, tundras also get less than 10 inches of rain or precipitation every year. So they are also still considered deserts. Um, 
So the soil on top, the permafrost is frozen year round. There's only a little bit of soil that will thaw in the summer for roots to grow. So a lot of the plants that live there have really shallow roots because they can't get into the permafrost. Um, but there's not very many things that can grow there. So a lot of the tundra in the Arctic are treeless. So if you're thinking about like up north at the North Pole, where Santa Claus lives in all the pine trees. There ain't no pine trees up there. It's just ice. Just yes. ice. That's and there's no like penguins. Slogan like "Welcome to the North Pole." It's, it's just, it's just ice. <laughs> like I said, Minnesota was founded in 1858. That's, that's just the little sign that greets you when you get there. Yeah, welcome to the North Pole. I don't know what you expected. <laughs> there's no penguins here. There are no penguins here. One of the major uh, misconceptions about about the uh, Arctic is that there's penguins there. There are not. There are puffins in the Arctic. We love um, puffins. Yes, they're great. So puffins and polar bears live on top. Penguins live on the bottom. And Emily and would say that, th- that puffins also live on top in our hearts and penguins live at the bottom of our I 1,000% <laughs> agree with this. You know, now. tomorrow is like penguin awareness day. So maybe tomorrow we can stop the penguin hate a little bit. Because there's there, – I love them. No, I love penguins too. <laughs> We Emily decided did that one episode. What was that episode even about when you talked about how puffins are better than penguins? Honestly, I don't know. a bird episode. We talked about yes. birds not bird being real. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, the last thing I kind of want to cover about um, the Arctic and the tundra is a phenomenon that we're pretty sure is real uh, called the Bering Strait crossing. So something that Emily mentioned, and it's super cool. Um, but we're also not sure. sure we're, we're pretty sure that that's yeah, we're pretty sure it happened. Um, yeah. Although Wikipedia just call it hypothetical. Well, Wikipedia doesn't know what they're talking about. That's also true. Um, <laughs> so basically, thousands of years ago, there was a land bridge between Russia and Alaska. Uh, And what's cool about that is a lot of the animals that lived, uh, you know, life originated, we believe, in Africa. It spread from there. Um, Between Africa and South America and North America, there's a big old ocean. So you're like, how did people get there? Um, Well, number one, the continents were connected. But number two, a lot of modern animals. Yeah, you're talking about humans. Or you're talking about, okay, modern animals. No, modern animals, yeah. So modern animals, um, they were supposedly able to cross from russia to um the modern day alaska modern day alaska uh through this little bridge uh and now there is like talks about making like a human made bridge there oh that's no that's with railroads (laughs) or Mm. a giant underground tunnel I, I have concerns about construction. <laughs> I have several concerns about a lot of things with this, but... Well, my main concern is how are they going to build anything across the Bering Sea? Yeah, that, yeah really. that is not friendly. Have you seen Deadliest Catch? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, there's this land bridge, so that's why we think a lot of the animals that live on, like, Russia's grizzly coast kind of match up with Alaska. Um Actually, at the Minnesota Zoo, we have an entire trail about it. So that's where I learned a lot about it. Uh, grizzly bears are found in both regions. Uh, sea otters, Amur leopards. Well, Amur leopards are just in, like, the Russia area. But, like, potentially could have at one point been there. So it's just really kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, and it led to a bunch of animals now living and being... Uh, native to the United States. So that's really cool. We do love that. So we love that. Um, So now we're going to get on to talking about a little bit more specific things. That was just my general overview of the Arctic and the tundra. And of course, what would an episode about the tundra be without Emily making a way to talk about belugas? So she's going to be covering the Arctic Ocean. Polar episode, and you weren't going to let me talk about belugas? Hilarious. I mean, none of us were going to do it, so... (sighs) Well, that's my sole purpose on in life is to teach people about beluga whales. I can do it. You are doing a very um, good job at that, just so you know. Thank you. You're welcome. So I've decided to cover the Arctic Ocean um, as your resident marine biologist here. 
So um, the Arctic Ocean itself is the coldest, shallowest, and smallest ocean. And Aww. to be honest, I just am in love with it. Um, I visited two oceans so far, and the Arctic would be the one that I want to visit the most. Even though the Indian Ocean has a lot of marine biodiversity, I think the Arctic has some of the coolest animals. Well, um, not just Greenland sharks. <laughs> there are other animals besides belugas, but most mostly belugas. Greenland sharks. Um. <laughs> Yes, Greenland sharks, I guess. Um, I love them. They're so weird. So this Arctic Ocean, it actually has the lowest salinity of any ocean. So that's pretty neat. Um, it's because of the abundant fresh water that's stored in the pack ice and the glaciers that are up there. Um, so all of that is constantly feeding into the water, which makes the salinity a lot less than other oceans. Um, what makes the Arctic Ocean special is that it has tons of primary producers. So if you're thinking about a food web or you're thinking about um, a food chain, there it is. <laughs> yep. food chain. I was getting there. Um, if you think about a food chain, you have your big, uh, you know, top predators, like I guess in an ar Arctic environment would be like a killer whale. The killer whale eats things like seals. The seals eat things like fish. And the fish, what do they eat? Smaller fish. And what do those smaller fish eat? They eat primary producers. So they're eating things that are plankton. So um, both phytoplankton, which is things like algae, and zooplankton, which is things like copepod and krill, little tiny amphipods, little tiny crustaceans as all these guys are. But they are thriving in this nutrient-rich water, which a lot of um, the ocean topography in the area allows for the upwelling of nutrition rich waters, um, which support these giant populations of all of these primary producers, which means that it's basically one big giant whale buffet um, most of the warm season. So when the Arctic is warm, these whales in droves come up to the Arctic. So this is not just beluga whales. Beluga whales live there year round, but killer whales, gray whales, and humpbacks will actually, well, gray whales, sorry, Gray whales and humpbacks will migrate there. Killer whales live all over the place, but they can come there to eat when they want to. Um, and they will come up there in huge, huge, huge numbers to feed on all of this uh, delicious food, basically. So all this krill, all these copepods. Um, and then the rest of the year, when it's cold up in the Arctic, they will go somewhere else. They'll go to Hawaii to have their babies. Or they'll go to California to have their babies. They so have a winter and a summer home. <laughs> they do. And they are living their best lives. They're bougie. They are. So belugas and narwhals are actually the only um, cetacean species that live in the true Arctic year round. Um, killer whales will live in the surrounding area year round, but belugas and narwhals truly live in the Arctic year round. They have tons of adaptations to help them live in that icy environment. Um, narwhals, I just wanted to throw this out there. Narwhals, their giant horn, it's not a horn, it's a tusk, which means it is a tooth. And fun fact, some narwhals have two. Crazy, because both That's of the their weirdest. teeth just say, I'm going to be a tusk. And then they just both are. And Because don't they like... Um, narwhals, actually, we didn't know the reason that they had tusks for a long time. People just kind of thought they would fight each other or that they were spearing their fish with it. But that's not it. They actually use them. They vibrate them. Um, and they can either stun fish with them or we think it's partially communication-based. So that's pretty They've got a radio antenna. They really do. Or narwhals a laser. Um, narwhals and belugas have also been known to adopt each other into their groups, which I think is really cute. They're both great friends. We love that. Mm -hmm. um, both of these animals have very small pectoral flippers, which allows them to be really maneuverable in this environment. They also have no dorsal fin, which means they're not losing any heat through there. And they're also not hitting it on the ice. And they're also pretty chubby because they have lots of blubber to keep them warm. And we love that. Um, both belugas and narwhals have really great echolocation, and that is so that they can find all their food in this very dark, very icy, very confusing environment to live in. But they're thriving up there, mostly. Um, we'll get Most, to... Mostly. I, mostly. Not all of them, but mostly. Most beluga um, populations are actually considered least concern. Um, the beluga population that we talk about a lot is the Cook Inlet population, um, but we've covered that extensively, so I won't go into that. Um, other animals that live in the ocean up here, we've got walruses and other pinnipeds. So lots of seals live up in the Arctic. Um, again, these are really nutrient rich waters so they can support these big, sexy megafauna yeah, as we like yeah. to talk about. Um, polar bears are a big, obvious one. I'm sure we're going to talk about them a little bit later, but I just like to mention them here in the ocean section because polar bears are in fact a marine mammal. Um, yes. A marine mammal is any animal who gets their food from the ocean and polar bears depend on the ocean for their food. So polar bears are marine mammal. Blow your mind. Also, 
Yeah. No, marine mammals is pretty much whales, dolphins, sea otters, polar bears, sea and pinnipeds. Yep. Yep. Seals. Yep. Um, we talked about why everybody's there because there's lots of fish to eat. Um, but let's talk about something that I don't know if you guys are aware of. It's called polar gigantism. This is oh, the wildest yes, thing. Yes, this in is the world. so cool. So when I was a poor, pathetic undergrad at the University of Hawaii and in my first marine like ecology class, we did a whole there was a whole lecture on marine gigantism. And I have like those images burned into my brain because <laughs> like, let me just put it this way. So I've already told you that the Arctic and Antarctic waters, they're very nutrient rich, which is why we get lots of megafauna there. But the water is really, really cold, which means you have to conserve your resources it also means there's actually a lot of dissolved oxygen in these areas, which allows these animals that live there to get ginormous. So I don't know if we've talked about this, but animals that live towards the equator tend to be very small and animals that live towards the poles tend to be quite large. Mm. So for example, you get these huge colossal squid, you get anemones that are the size of a kitchen table, you get crabs, oh spider crabs that are as big as a ah. car. Like this is the stuff of my nightmares. Um, sea it's cucumbers so cool. that are like the size of a loaf of bread. You get jellies that are literally like the size of a oh, car. That's it's my nightmare. That is my nightmare. Um, the largest Giant jellyfish, jellyfish in the world do oh, live I, in the Arctic. Oh. I want to go in a submarine there. Is it um, Emily talking about the Arctic or is this, this is both? You said this polar. is both. Polar, okay. polar gigantism happens gotcha. at both. Um, I was primarily talking about the Arctic Ocean earlier, but now I decided I would talk about polar gigantism. I actually know someone that is going to be living at the Antarctic base. I heard about that um, and I'm pretty so soon. jealous. Yeah, I have a friend who's been there twice and I'm the most jealous of her. Katie, you rock. My friend Katie, who... She, her job is to control a bunch of little tiny ocean robots that are Ooh. constantly checking um, just different like n- nutrients in the water, essentially. Um, but she's been to Antarctica twice as part of her research. And I, fun. she's just living the dream, truly. But um, yeah, so deep sea gigantism, we think it's because of the colder temperature. So these animals are basically hoarding their resources, which makes them larger. Food is more scarce. So the larger you are, the better chance you have of finding food. Um, and then reduce predation pressure so you can get bigger because no one's going to eat you before you get big. Um, and then mm-hmm. increase dissolved oxygen, which allows these animals to basically be more efficient. So um, mm. it's freaking wild. There are some sea stars that are huge, too. Um, lots of invertebrates are um, exhibit deep sea gigantism, which is wild. So like you look at an anemone on a coral reef, you know, very warm, shallow environment where there's actually not a lot of nutrients there, not a lot going on in the water itself. Those animals are really small. And then you get to the Arctic and the anemone is, like I said, the size of your kitchen table. It's crazy. Jeez. There's, um, just, there's more space because there's less animals. It's true. So, like I said, in the big the big megafauna, they're not eating a lot of this stuff. They're eating fish. So, mm-hmm. um, lugas are kind of the exception. They do eat a lot of crustaceans as well as narwhals because they do live there year round. But the migratory animals, like the gray whales, the humpback whales, they're eating all these big populations of copepods and krill. So, um, with that, that's really all I got. Um, like I said, it polar gigantism does occur both in the Antarctic and in the Arctic. So that's pretty neat. But I think with that, I'm going to pass it on to Katie, who's going to start covering land animals. Good job, Emily. That was good. Yeah. I never heard of polar gigantism before, so now I'm really excited. I learned something new. Thank you. I was going to say, go Google the stuff of your nightmares. It will be- I'm- Now we're going to travel to the fluffy and feathery friends of the poles of the North and South Pole. Uh, and um, feathery being the best friends of the North and right. South Pole. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> Uh, so there's no primate when it well, no, so you know, eh. but they do have some cool stuff. Um, in the Arctic and the Antarctic, um, the wildlife in both these places have some pretty special adaptations that enable them to survive in very icy and very uh, kind of changing environments. Uh, so some of those animals, like Arctic foxes, polar bears, and caribou. Um, have something called hollow hair traps. Um, yes. so hollow hair that traps air, which provides them with insulation, um, which is really crazy. Um, one of my favorite things adding on to polar bears is the fact that they have black skin, 
um, which actually enables them to soak up as much of the sun's rays and heat as possible. But their fur is almost transparent. So obviously they have a lot of fur too. Um, and because it's trans, it's almost transparent, it appears white due to the reflection of sunlight and then the snow reflection off of the snow as well. So that's kind of crazy. Um, I actually got to see when I was um, a lot younger, um, polar bear fur underneath a microscope. And it's fascinating. Can, yeah, you could see how it was totally transparent. It was actually at a, it was at SeaWorld, I think, um, when they used to have polar bears. And I did like a backstage tour there with my mom. And I remember we got to do that, which was really cool. Um, other animals will actually change color with the seasons to blend in without, with the changing uh, ground cover. So, for example, Arctic foxes and Arctic hares are two animals that go from a brownish color in the summertime to white in the winter, kind of we, always be blending into their environment. We had Arctic foxes at one of the zoos that I worked at, and I remember, like, I was the, obviously I was a summer camp counselor, so I saw them in their summer coats, and it was really easy to identify them. And then you come back in the winter, and I was visiting them, and I was like, I don't know which one of you is which anymore, because they were all just so pretty and white. They're just white, yeah, that is pretty funny. But it was really um, cute because I'm like, I don't know if you're the boy or the girl, but hello. So those were some of uh, like Arctic foxes, Arctic hares, polar bears um, are some of the big ones that people usually think of when it comes to those Arctic animals, but. Um, I mentioned caribou as well. Um, now, did you guys know that caribou and reindeer are the same thing? Yes. It's yes. one of my biggest pet peeves when people don't get that right. <laughs> so in Europe, um, they're called reindeer only. But in North America, they're called caribou when they're wild and reindeer when they're domesticated. I, I have a funny anecdote about this. Sure. So well, again, when I was a zoo camp counselor, uh, we had caribou at one of our on one of the facilities and did you have caribou did you have reindeer i mean they're probably reindeer let's be real um we we weren't like we're gonna go get the wild ones we're like yeah this farm has them we'll take them um but so we had them and i was asking like these i think they were fourth graders i was like are these so does anybody know what the difference between caribou and reindeer is and a kid raises his hand and he says yeah caribou is what my mom drinks in the morning (laughs) like the coffee yeah, because there's oh. in Minnesota there's a coffee chain called Caribou. That should have been where I led. Uh, in okay. Minnesota there's a coffee no chain idea. called like Caribou, Caribou Coffee, <laughs> and so he raised me. He's like, "Caribou's my mom drinks in the morning," and it took me a second, and then I started laughing, and I was like, "Well, you're not wrong." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The famous "You're not wrong," uh, but also, well, Caribou are very well adapted to not only the cold but also traveling uh, long distances. Um, they migrate further than any other terrestrial animal, um, as much as 5,000 miles a year. Would nice. love to get um, one of those step counters on a caribou. <laughs> you, I wonder if anyone's done that. I think that would be great. <laughs> that and wildebeest. I would love to yeah, see. Yeah, so they actually they migrate very, very far um, to kind of follow vegetation because that's what they eat. Uh and especially in areas like in northern Alaska, as you're getting into more of that uh, Arctic area, Arctic regions, uh, that's not going to be trees. It's going to be a lot of moss and um, low grass or low bushes and things like that. So very interesting. Um, some other notable mentions in the Arctic, you have Arctic wolves, um, moose, musk ox, wolverines, lemmings, and ermines. Oh, musk ox are so weird. Yeah. If you've never seen an ermine, by the way, please look it up. They're like little snowy weasels. They're very cute. <laughs> That's what they look like. They, I know. Like, I'm just laughing. They're so like, cute. That's exactly what they look like, but I've never, like, thought of it described little that way. Little snowy weasels. They're, snowy they're also called a stoat. S-O-A-T. Oh, they're also called short-tailed weasels, so they are weasels. Oh, well, look at that. Um, but yeah. Katie, you did it. I'm really proud of you. And they also are one of those animals that changes colors. So in the winter, they're fully white to blend in with the snow. But in the um, spring and summertime, they, the top part of their body uh, changes to a brown color. So fun, Dude, fun stuff cute. there. They're so cute, right? I love them. Um, moving on, though, to birds of the Arctic region. Um, there are huge populations of migratory birds that come to the Arctic in the summer to breed. 
Um, America's Arctic, which is going to be in Alaska, the northeast corner of Alaska, um, includes the 19.6 million acre Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Um, This protected area alone is home to more than 200 bird species, which migrate to the refuge to breed in the summertime. Um, This is as many as 300,000 snow geese visit the coastal plain each fall to feed on the tundra, which is crazy. I need to go birding there. Yeah, that would be a pretty insane place to go birding. Um, I would just sit there. It's extremely remote. (laughs) I listen Um, again. Minnesota was founded in 1858. I think I could do it. Oh my goodness! So um, there is one bird I want to mention, though, and it's kind of going to lead me into Antarctic animals as well. And this animal is called the Arctic tern. Oh, um, these guys are as crazy. In, yeah, T-E-R-N. They seriously are. Um, the more I read about them, the more my mind was blown. They're a very special bird that lives in both the Arctic and in Antarctica at different times of the years. So they the fly. live in both. Yeah. Uh, they fly nearly 56,000 miles every year. Uh, so they stop over in an area uh, of high productivity in the North Atlantic for about 25 days when flying south from uh, from the Arctic back to Antarctica. It takes them about three months on the journey south, but only around 40 days to fly back north again, mainly due to the strength of the winds. It, 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 insane. Who's yelling? Is that a kitten? That would be a zoomie. She's complaining again about her sweater. (laughs) I sweater now. That's funny. Oh my god. So cute. That's totally staying in here. Oh. I I promise I love my cat. I love her so much. But there yes. (laughs) Ma'am, you can move just fine. You're throwing a hissy fit. I know. I stuck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyways, so these Arctic terns, um, this is a little kind of fun little fact. So as Emily mentioned earlier, the Arctic and Antarctic both have 24 hour uh, daylight, uh, 24 hour of sunlight in midsummer. um, And the Arctic terns are in both places in midsummer so they are probably the animal that actually experiences the most daylight of any on the planet that's crazy yeah like dang they must just be really happy birds you know <laughs> with all that flying <laughs> the happiest birdie that ever was but since like i said they also live in Antarctica, this is kind of a good segue um so there were a lot of land mammal and land animals uh that i mentioned for the arctic for the north pole um land animals are much more easily able to travel to the north pole unlike in antarctica where animals must be able to swim or fly over hundreds of miles of frigid and storm prone ocean Um, or just not migrate yeah yeah so it's just not as easy easily accessible as the north pole so in the south pole you do not have nearly as many mammals down there you basically you got seals and you got whales. Uh, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> I suppose I should have mentioned that. And it's because like in the North Pole, the ice freezes over. So you're able to get to the North Pole yes, exactly. during the year. Antarctica, even like the closest thing to it is the tip of South America. And there's not like any ice bridge that forms there. And that's not even super close no it's not but like that's the closest <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so that's why it's a lot more difficult which is why you don't find nearly as many animals in antarctica as you do in the north pole um so like i said mammal wise it's really just gonna be your seals and whales um bird wise though you do have quite a few um you, namely those penguins yeah a lot of penguins down there uh so they're gonna be your big bird but then you have oh. an even bigger bird technically you have your albatrosses um which is the one i want to mention yeah albatross are really awesome they're actually one of my favorite birds probably um the largest albatross is um the wandering albatross is what it's called they actually have the longest wingspan of any bird on the planet uh 
they are a little unusual in their breeding system. Uh, they're monogamous, so they mate for life, which is really precious. There's that one. There is. Isn't there an albatross couple that they've been, like, tracking for 70 years 70? Well, they, I think they think that she's 70 years old. I don't know if they've oh, been okay. tracking her for that long, okay. but I think that was, like, her estimated age. Yeah. Here, I, let, I gotta look you you that. keep talking and i'll google it okay so, you know what i really enjoy is that video of the penguins with the standoff with the albatross and then <laughs> the one uh what is it the rock copper penguin is like get out of here oh i was gonna say i'll I totally thought you. they were adelis because adelis oh yeah have that Adelie. kind of courage and yes, they're right. i don't know what i call it courage in, okay they got i don't know they got guts <laughs> they got guts courage <laughs> and stupidity <laughs> often overlap Yes. And right. Adelis are and right in the middle Adelis. of that Venn that's, diagram. That's Adelis, uh, absolutely. Okay, so um, I have I have your information. Go ahead. Um, it's not a wandering albatross, but she also has her own page on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website, which is amazing. So her name is Wisdom. She's a liaison albatross, L-A-Y-S-A-N, liaison. Um, apparently, she is at least 66 years old mm-hmm. um, and she they, she lives near Hawaii so not quite in the Arctic but still like a s- stupid old albatross that has been coming back to the same place to lay her eggs for years and years and years so she probably has great 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 grandchildren that she Aww. can like potentially interact with that's so cute it's so cool so I think this might be for all albatross um but basically they breed for life but they only have one chick every two years approximately um and even and then still some pairs some mates will defer breeding beyond one year so sometimes it might be every three years they'll only lay one egg so they have a very slow breeding rate it's not Um, the best survival tactic it's not it's not. Um, when it comes to the wandering albatross specifically, uh, they get that name because they go on really long fishing trips of 10 to 20 days where they can cover over 6,000 miles using barely more energy than when they are sitting on the nest, which that... is crazy because they're they they so it? long, they kind of are able to glide really low on um, winds, basically, right? Yeah, so what they this is like one of my favorite things to tell people because it's it's crazy. What they do is they can they can stay in the air for a long time because they basically ride the current up so they turn they turned upwind and the wind like shoots them really high in the air and they just glide down when they and they turn <laughs> down when they glide and down. Yeah. And they just keep gliding. So they don't ever like even flap their wings. They also have some they have sort to. of adaptation in their wings that allows them to kind of like, they're not flexing that muscle in their arm when their wings are expanded. Like, there's something they can lock into place almost. They're crazy. They ex- like, they're not expanding that that much energy keeping their wings open. Right. It's like they, they got some sort of physiological thing that allows them to to do it for a long time. And it is, I don't know, it, they're, they're insane birds. Just overall a really cool bird that lives down in the Arctic. Um Like I said earlier, wandering albatrosses are the largest species of albatross, and they are considered vulnerable, but there are other species that are either threatened, endangered, or critically endangered. Um, Many populations are in long-term decline as a result of losses from longline fisheries, so they get entangled very often when they're fishing or diving to get food um, in fishing nets, and again, they have such a slow breeding rate that it's hard for them to recover population that's lost. So cut your fish. Well, no, don't cut your fishing line. <laughs> Reel it in, baby. So that's that's your recap on uh, animals and the poles. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful <laughs> TED Talk. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Fabulous. Can you well, imagine if we um, got to give a TED Talk one day? That'd be so Well, speaking of animals, um, I'm going to talk about <laughs> animal crossovers <laughs> speaking of animals on this show where we talk about animals well you were just talking about the pole i know animal. i know yeah fair enough fair but enough. you're not wrong um so prizzlies 
I'm dead. First of all, why do they call him a prisling? I mean, I guess there's no other better way to go for it. You're going to have uh, to uh, expand on that for yes, those people who do know not what know a, what a prisly is. Yes, it's a grizzly bear and polar bear hybrid. Um, So, I don't know. I mean, I guess the other way would just be goler, and that sounds worse. So, prizzlies it is. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, basically how this happened, unfortunately, you know, as we all know, the polar ice cap is continuing to melt. Um, so the polar bears are forced to move down south, which is where they're now interacting with grizzly bears. And when I say interacting, bounce, go, wow, wow. Wow. Yeah, so it's where things get debatable in the science world, though. Um, one of the ways that animals are defined as a separate species, in case you didn't know, is that they cannot mate. So this makes it confusing because polar bears and grizzlies can Isn't mate. That their offspring can produce. Yeah, it's if they if yeah. they have viable offspring. Well, they still so, can. Because, like, there's plenty of different species that can reproduce, like, can mate, but their offspring is either not viable right. or their offspring cannot produce offspring of their own. Right. So, that's another type of speciation is when you have geographical separation. Yes. So, polar bears and grizzlies have had geographical separation. However, they are moving on their own. So this is where uh, things get a little bit confusing uh, because what we know as them being separate species is now making that a blurry line where we're not sure, to be honest. Um, and But they oh. don't have any physical ailments either. And if you look at them, they kind of look the, like the same. It just looks like a cream-colored bear. They're very pretty. Wait, are you serious? Yeah, they're just like, like lighter colored grizzly bears. Yeah, I think they're also like called um Kodiak bears and spirit bears, I believe. Ooh, I like that name better. A lot I think better it's like, yeah, it's like, and it, and honestly, it might not be the first time either because oh my God, they're cute in a lot of Native American legends. There are spirit bears, yes. So I wonder, huh. Yeah, oh, so speaking of, this was not the first confirmed sighting of all time. That's crazy. Um, the first time, there's been rumors of... Oh, wait, I lied. I'm sorry. For a very long time. Uh, spirit um, bears are, are black bears with really, really light fur, so not at all the same oh. thing. Well, <laughs> you tried. It, this isn't something new. Like, Prizzlies have been around for a long time, and there's been rumors of them for a long time. But the first time that it was able to be confirmed was in 2006, um, someone who was hunting for grizzly bears, uh, shot one, and then he realized that it looked like a weird color and then, uh, submitted it for science. So, so this is what has led, um, scientists to believe that they might actually, which is pretty interesting. Um, however, per usual, scientists are arguing about it. So we're not in an, any agreement if they're the same or different. Um, the kind of interesting part of it is that we're kind of witnessing evolution, y'all. Um, there is a sad part to it, though, is that this just means that it's just further evidence that the Earth is changing. And one day we probably won't have polar bears. Um, but even though this hybrid is fertile and survives well, for it to continue to be its own animal, uh, thousands of more years of adaptation would have to occur. Uh, occur. So it's still a hybrid, y'all. It's not, we're not like actual evolution. It's just new bear, (laughs) new bear unlocked, new bear who dis. Yeah. Um, so I was curious and I was like, well, are there other animals that have hybridized naturally, keyword naturally, in polar regions? And Prisleys are not the first. Very interesting. (laughs) Um, I wish Emily B was here for this one because there's, narlugas <laughs> which I are like she mentioned that before maybe that's why they adopt each other so readily into yeah, their social like, groups we're just cousins we're so yeah. closely related except you got a big horn and i don't i know it's we a- both only got the one tooth but other than that we fine right so basically it ends up looking like a beluga shaped whale but narwhal colored but it doesn't yep. have a horn yep yeah. Just like a grayish beluga. 
Yeah. Dark um, green beluga. There's also ring seal and ribbon seal hybrids. Um, bowhead whale and right whale hybrids. Harp seal and hooded seal. And harper porpoise and doll's porpoise. So those those pinnipeds just be uh <laughs> they do getting it on, man. Because I was oh, gonna thanks. talk about conservation and hybrid species. Oh so the big issue is how do we protect and conserve hybrids? Do we? I don't know. Great, great question. So <laughs> scientists uh basically when it comes to monitoring populations of animals, they also include hybrids in this. And they also have to factor in, like, the risk of having grizzlies, for example, with other species that are not grizzlies um, and the land that they're encroaching on at the same time. So there's issues with that on its own. But then for conservation, um, policymakers are trying to incorporate hybrids into management and protection plans. But there's no clear protection uh, for them like there are for grizzlies and polar bears. Which is interesting for that specific example because polar bears are classified as endangered and grizzlies are threatened and protected. But grizzlies are not. So they're not in the Endangered Species Act and they don't have the same protection. So the lines are really blurry about like... I feel like really it's it's about protecting the other two species. Yeah. Like, because that's the whole reason they're there in the first place. Right. So, I mean, it's like the land that's around them, right? Like we always say, like when donate to lions and help save lions, and you're like, well, you're really saving lions and everything else in that same area. So it's the same kind of thing with this. Is if we allocate protection to the area that these animals are in, we're gonna not only protect them, but also uh their buddies they just like to hang out really, really closely with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the issue is is that like the individuals are not protected. So like if I was a hunter and go to hunt a grizzly, the line is pretty blurry. Right. Yeah, that does. That's gray area. Right. So that's what the conservation about it. I did want to add, if anyone was curious about how this happens, basically animals can hybridize when they have the same number of chromosomes and belong to the same. Um, how do you pronounce that? Genera? Genera? Um, genre? I, I like oh, music genre. Uh, I like genies. Amazing. Okay, well, anyways, you get the point. I did steal that from Keeper Chat, but I think it's fine. Okay. (laughs) So, uh, now that I talked a little bit about conservation, Kenzie, you can, like, really go in on this. All right. This is what Kenzie's been waiting for. Hashtag eat the rich. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll get into that later. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, we've covered... All right, so we've talked about the polar regions, Uh, we've talked about the animals, the geography, and we've also mentioned some of the uh, conservation actions that you can take. Well, we're going to dive a little bit deeper in there. What are the big issues facing threats to the polar regions and the tundra? So the two biggest ones, and they're very much interrelated to each other, is oil and gas development and climate change and loss of sea ice. So... There is lots of untapped natural gas and oil up in the polar regions, especially along the seafloor beds. And during the Trump administration, the Trump administration actually allowed for oil drilling to be permitted within the uh, National Wildlife Refuge in the Arctic. Uh, Bad move. Bad, bad, bad move. (sighs) This is why voting is important. We'll get into that. We did it. We did it. It hopefully can be reversed. Yeah, I mean, obviously, our infrastructure is very much geared toward fossil fuels, so it's not something we can quit doing overnight. But when you have oil drilling, it's not necessarily a matter of if something will go wrong, but more so when something will go mm. wrong. So increasing and how you handle it matters. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so companies definitely have a really big responsibility when they go into that because sometimes some good can come of it. Uh, Increase in technological development. Sometimes these companies will support scientific research and data. And obviously it is it can be a lucrative form of uh, jobs for people, especially within the local community. But again, it really does vary. 
Uh, also, negative impacts are felt on wildlife and indigenous people during production, especially when roadways are being constructed and you have to build all these things because you are tearing up the land and you are displacing native species and native people when you do that. Also, another issue, it's not just oil spills, but a lot of toxic minerals from the drilling process can linger in the water for years afterwards, and that can have a lot of adverse health effects for everyone involved. Uh, so, uh, just think about that. <laughs> not great. But again, it's not an easy issue. Nothing and, is. Yeah, no. And of course, we talked about climate change. Well, what is climate change? We talk about that a lot. So, the very basic definition of climate change is a change in the usual weather in a place. Now, according to NASA, Earth's temperature overall has risen to one degree Fahrenheit within the past century, mostly due to the release of carbon dioxide via the burning of, of fossil fuels. Now, one degree Fahrenheit doesn't sound like a lot, but just that one degree can really throw things out of balance. To kind of put it in perspective, when I traveled to Botswana back in 2017, I was talking to one of our uh, trackers who worked with us. His name was Ora. And I was talking with Ora and also KT, who was our tracker and driver as well. And they were saying how within the past 20 years of growing up in the region, they had seen a lot of weird weather changes that their families before them, the generations before them had never experienced. And so that region, it's very hard to have a subsistence living because it's mostly desert out there. So combine that with freak weather and longer droughts and more uh, flooding during the rainy season, it's going to get a lot harder. So climate change, the people who are going to feel it first and most are unprotected and marginalized people and people who come from lesser developed nations. So it's it's a human rights issue. Again, <laughs> we're going back to that circle. There Shocker. are many, many, yeah. many, many climate refugees out there. Um, a lot Already. of people think that that is something, a term that's going to be used in, further in the future, but that is people have already been displaced due to climate change. Yeah. Um, um, mainly due to flooding. Yeah. I mean, Emily herself was at one point could classify as a climate refugee because of uh, flooding via hurricane and the keys, but mm -hmm. she'll tell y'all about that later. <laughs> <laughs> now, according to the ocean conservancy, it's been documented that since 1985, the Arctic has lost up to 95% of its oldest multi-year ice. So that's ice that's been compressed and packed down uh, over years and years and years. Now, with the change in temperatures, interesting enough, some areas in Western Canada reported an increase of one to two degrees Celsius, while other areas further east found a decrease by one degrees. It's expected that there will be a lot of disruption to the natural order, and it's going to vary region by region. Uh, one good example of this also is lichens and mosses have been struggling, and they're likely to continue to struggle and be overtaken by vascular plants. So think of plants like grasses, shrubs, uh, grasses, or not grasses, <laughs> plants that we as everyday people living further south would see. This is actually expected to further exasperate caribou and reindeer populations, uh, some of whom a lot of native people actually rely on for their way of life. And of course, native species will have to compete for space and food in general as other species from further south eventually migrate northward with the rising temperature. Uh, uh, polar bears and grizzly bears. <laughs> right? Yeah, just like Emily was talking about. We're going to have more hybridization and mixes. Um, now back or just you know, out competing each other because not yeah. everyone can just mate and yeah. be happy. <laughs> no, it can't work for everyone. In 2011, so this was about 10 years ago, uh, 2011, it was oh found God. that in Antarctica, the Antarctic Peninsula was losing up to 85% of its seasonal ice. Now, the loss of sea ice has a huge negative impact on species such as the Adelie penguin, whose population has been dropping by a whopping 80% since 1975. No. Uh, krill have also declined by 80% since studies were conducted in 1991, according to one study that was also, again, published in 2011. Uh, this is because krill larvae actually feed beneath the ice sheet, so less ice, The less whales krill. need the krill. The krill needed, the penguins needed a lot of animals need it. Everybody needs it. 
Now, much more recent event, though, that happened in 2017, a portion of ice the size of Delaware broke away from the Antarctic ice shelf. Uh, this isn't great. <laughs> I remember not, when this not great. No, oh, it wasn't. I, it was like a big deal. We talked about it in school and all of us yeah. were like, we're dying. And I mean, they're not wrong. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So when you lose ice off an ice shelf, obviously that ice shelf becomes way more unstable. And scientists estimated that if all the ice in Antarctica melted, our sea levels would rise by 200 feet. Mm, so if you guys good. are looking to buy uh, front coastline properties, just, <laughs> just wait another 20 years and go 60 miles inland from now. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're we're going to lose all of our houses. Cool, cool, cool. So, cool, cool, cool. Uh, Kenzie, what can we what can we do about it before I uh, please, dear God, lose my mind? <laughs> so, there are things that we can do, and we can still work together to try and stem the worst of climate change and try and reverse as best we can what's happened. Uh, the biggest thing on an individual level is using less energy, carpool, public transportation, if you can afford it, fuel efficient vehicles, investing in renewable energy like solar and wind. Um, reducing consumption of goods because pretty much everything we use today has in some way or another been produced by fossil fuels. I mean, even this plastic Starbucks cup, God forgive me, um, as probably has petroleum in it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> wow, it's, not your, it's your perfect. fault that the ice is melting. I say reduce consumption, and what do I do? I'm a consumer. No, no, no. This, Wait, is, a, you know this is a good we point. Live, we live but in a capitalistic society. What do you want? Where this is, is a good point, capitalism. though. No, actually, this is, like, such a guilty thing that we, like... We are not perfect people. No one's a perfect person. But if all of us just do like one thing every like week, yeah. even There's if it's like perfect perfectly, it doesn't take just one person doing conservation perfectly. It takes a million people doing it imperfectly. Yes, and so you're well, allowed to be imperfect, Kenzie, and you're allowed. I'm like drinking out of McDonald's cup with a straw right now too. So we'll point out, um, as Kenzie mentioned earlier about eating the rich. <laughs> or Emily, I don't remember who actually mentioned it. I know um, it was definitely Kenzie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, yes, while our obviously our actions, our everyday actions, matter greatly, it's important to remember that the actions of uh, large corporations matter. Uh, a yeah, lot too. Yeah. I have that uh, in my, in my little Google impact, PowerPoint right is, here. <laughs> right, which is where more of like the choosing what companies we choose to consume from and. Mm -hmm. Holding companies accountable, accountable, that's a big one. Yep, yep. Um, oh, is, is really important. All right, so reducing <laughs> consumption of goods wherever possible. Uh, donate to research and conservation efforts when you can. Um, I know for me personally, when it's my birthday or it's the holidays, people ask, Kenzie, what do you want? And I go, donate to conservation. That's what I like. Or my grocery fund. Pick a side. Or both. <laughs> Or uh, chocolate that supports animals or other things that support animals. Yes. Uh, sign petitions. That's the great thing about having the internet is you have lots of access to learning about policies and you have access to viable organizations that have set up actionable items, including petitions that you can give to corporations as well as your public representatives, which pressure your representatives and the big companies. You got to pressure them. You got to hold them accountable. You got to vote both at the ballot and with your wallet. Hashtag eat the rich for the planet. Because if you're not going to tax them, you might as well eat them. <laughs> oh, my good God. All right. So we got any uh, closing announcements? We do. Because literally, Kenzie just did the entire conservation connection. So, uh, yeah. So a couple announcements. Um, again, next next episode is our one year anniversary Woo! which is crazy so uh, we'll put a poll up on social media and you guys can tell us what you would like us to talk about should we do the great animal debate part two which animal do we personally think is the worst like that would be kind of fun because <laughs> um, I have opinions and we've done that no actually because like even though pandas are the worst I have a hatred for another animal oh okay it's Jeez. actually a, it's actually <laughs> a bird okay wow. so let us know do you, do you want to hear about that um 
what kind of guests would you like to have? Do you want us to talk about sustainability, animals, weird niche topics? So give us suggestions. We'd love to hear them. Uh, you can give us suggestions on our social medias. We have got an email. It's conservationqueenspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at conservationqueenspodcast. Our Facebook page is conservationqueenspodcast. Everything is conservationqueenspodcast. It's long. <laughs> we're sorry. Um, we also have a website. Uh, the URL is kind of hard to get to. So if you just go to the Facebook page or the Instagram, we have them linked there. Uh, on the website, you can check out our Conservation Connections page where you can see the links for all kinds of different organizations that we have talked about in different episodes. You can listen to every single episode of the Conservation Queens podcast. And there is a form to submit your questions. So absolutely use that website. We love it. Um, one of the best ways to help us out as a podcast is rating us five stars on iTunes and Spotify and leaving a review. This is the best way to have other people discover the podcast. So if you guys that. do, we love it. We've gotten some really nice reviews. Thanks, Reagan. Yeah, and the other really person. Your size are Thank so you. sweet. It makes us happy every time. Um, so make sure to keep doing that for us. It's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks for our one-year anniversary. So go out there and say sustainable. Bye. 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 Vaccines. <laughs>